This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. As regular listeners of this program will note, uh, the host of the show was fortunate enough to be able to visit the African continent uh, a month ago and have been itching to come back with some of the stories of the various adventures engaged in, some of which I've alluded to already. But I thought I should talk a little bit more about that and some of my traveling companions, perhaps, because, well, it's just an unusual thing to be driving along in a four-wheel drive vehicle and look out over a river over a river valley and see herds of elephants i mean more than one herds and herds of elephants i was counting them up quickly at one point and noted there was like you know more than a hundred here more than a hundred there um i figured that we surely had laid eyes on a couple thousand elephants in in the matter of a couple of hours which which frankly you can't do it marine world africa usa We've been talking about posting pictures, but have not yet done so. But I do have to put a couple of them out there. Uh, one I sent home to a few people and labeled Rush Hour, which had an elephant with prominent tusks stepping onto the road a car length in front of our vehicle. And it was followed by numerous other elephants. There were, there were elephants going through the woods everywhere you looked. And it's just a very cool thing. One especially cool thing was to hear this sort of thumping sound and look over and realize that the elephant was whacking this palm tree that had nuts in it. They weren't coconut palms. They were some sort of nuts that everybody else finds inedible, but the elephant, once it knocks it down, will will chomp them. I forget the number, which they told us, of how much an elephant has to eat in a given day, but it's I think it's it's in the hundreds of pounds of vegetation. Since the elephants we were looking at were near water, near a river, they would sort of wander out and start grabbing these stalks of grass, whipping them around to, I guess, uh, presumably get the mud off the roots and then chomping away. And uh, there was quite a bit of um, processed elephant meal <laughs> laying on, on the various uh, roads and pathways. And although it, I guess it sounds a bit gross because it is a bit gross, uh, once it dries out or maybe even before it dries out, the baboon population tends to come along and sort through it to find things that hadn't quite been digested because I think having some of these nuts pre-digested makes them easier for the other animals to consume. I was keenly disappointed in not seeing any dung beetles, but apparently it wasn't the right time of year for them. The, uh, the baboons were uh, apparently consuming these sausage-like fruits. It looked like little salamis hanging from the tree. Uh, they call them fruits, but uh, be- again, people don't find them edible, but the baboons managed to to eat them. When you look out over this sort of parched countryside with, you know, trees spaced not one on top of the other, because I think that given that it's a dry climate, you can only support so many trees, and nature's very competitive, you know, trees are busy, busy fending away other trees from taking root near them. So it was kind of like a park in a, in a strange sort of way, seeing evenly spaced trees as far as the eye could see. Near the camp that we had out in the Okavango, there were lots of baboons, and I, I think that our hosts were fearful the baboons were going to knock some of these sausage fruits down on us. 
So they had a pathway to the tents that took us uh, away from the trees, but, you know, we were in a hurry. We walked under the trees. We took the shortcut. And neither Elise nor I nor anyone else you know, in our group, as far as we know, was actually struck and injured by a sausage fruit. Well, we do want to add that we did check to make sure there were no baboons up in the trees shaking loose the fruits to fall upon us. One does need to exercise caution. I mentioned the fact that we had a very, a very nice group of people to, with which uh, we hung for 11 days. I hope that uh, our traveling companion George managed to get through the uh, David McCullough biography of the Wright Brothers, which I enjoyed very much on the way over. He, in turn, bequeathed me a copy of SPQR, History of Ancient Rome by Mary Beard. I have not yet finished it, uh, but, uh, but hopefully will and can report on it for, for his benefit and yours. I do have to note that uh, David McCullough, the author of the Wright Brothers book, passed away recently. should probably say a few words about that. According to the Week magazine, David McCullough often opened his histories with his subjects on the move and he brought the readers along for a ride through a gripping story. Despite their formidable length, his biographies of underappreciated presidents, 1992's Truman and 2001's John Adams, were both bestsellers and Pulitzer Prize winners. His secret was the evocative details supplied by his monumental research. The Adams book, for instance, described not only the revolutionary's moral character, but also the smells of Philadelphia summers and the taste of local beer. While McCullough was known for his scholarship, the result was 13 lively books that have sold more than 9 million copies. People ask me if I'm working on a book, McCullough said in 1992. I work in a book. It's almost like hypnosis. McCullough was also a natural on television, said the New York Times. He hosted the PBS series American Experience and narrated documentaries, including Ken Burns' series The Civil War. But his writing took priority, and he was choosy about subjects, seeking people he liked enough to immerse himself in for years. McCullough was sometimes accused of romanticizing his subjects, but he was determined to dispel the idea, he said in 2005, that history and boring are synonymous. To me, it's the reverse. The wonderful thing about almost any subject in history is, if you scratch the surface, you'll find life. It's all around us. I especially enjoyed reading about the Wright brothers as I was uh, sitting inside an aluminum tube flying at like Mach 8.5 at 37,000 feet. Aviation certainly developed quickly away from Kitty Hawk, but the story of their trials and tribulations and how they were determined to, uh, to make uh, first gliding work and develop control systems, that they, they always saw as the key to aviation. Although in truth, their friends of mine who, who fly point out that it was... Uh, Glenn Curtis, who made a lot of the innovations uh, that are part of modern aircraft. The Wright brothers' method of warping the wing to make a turn, for example, uh, was not something that really worked out in the long run. One thing that's always struck me as as a terrible reality about aviation was that no sooner were airplanes invented than they were put to work in war. By the time World War I rolled around in 1914, aircraft had developed to the point where they could be used to uh, spy on troops and, and shoot, shoot one another out of the skies. It was a long, long time before aviation took a turn from uh, being a weapon of war to something that uh, was a commercial success and moving large numbers of people around the globe. I mean, that was half a century before that happened. But I digress. One thing that really struck me about traveling was um, 
how weird our weather has become around the world. East Africa, north of, of where we were, uh, is suffering its fourth year of drought. Meanwhile, temperature records are being broken all across European cities where rivers were drier than at any point in the last 500 years. There was a 70-day heat wave across much of China that saw temperatures regularly going over 104. The country's two largest lakes dropped to their lowest recorded heights. The monsoons in the Indian subcontinent were the heaviest in a decade. They flooded a third of Pakistan and left more than 1,100 people dead. Australia was earlier hit with unprecedented rain and heat. And this prompted the article in the Science and Technology section of The Economist to say La Nina and climate change have combined to create a spate of heat waves and floods. Get used to it. I remember when I took climate and weather back as a college student many, many years ago, how impressed I was by the fact that warmer air can contain much more moisture than cooler air. The Economist mentions that there's an additional 7% moisture in the air for every extra degree Celsius, which means as the Earth gets warmer, it's going to get moister and there's going to be more extreme weather events. This was something, by the way, that was predicted by James Hansen in testimony to Congress in the 1980s. And it's true that we probably can't blame all of this on global warming. Part of this has to do with some natural oscillations of La Nina, alternating with what's described as the El Nino Southern Oscillation, or ENSO. Sometimes tropical waters are warmer than usual. Sometimes tropical waters are cooler than usual. This produces what's called La Nina or El Nino, and this affects the world's weather. They are now saying that for the third year in a row, this coming year will be a La Nina year. It's reportedly the first time this century, meaning the 21st century, that such a triple dip has been recorded. Ordinarily, these El Nino Southern Oscillation operates on a three to seven year cycle with strong El Ninos tending to be followed by balancing La Ninas. They're having a hard time understanding why it is this is happening right now using their computer models, but it ain't good no matter why it's happening. I mean, this summer, the UK, France, and other countries declared heat emergencies and urged residents to avoid non-essential travel. In London, they closed much of the underground. In the UK, where only 5% of the homes have air conditioning, temperatures soared to 104.4. Paris saw 104.9. Flying home, I did take a look down at the border between Bulgaria and Romania to note that the Danube still had water in it. But the reports are that the water levels in the Danube dropped so low a couple weeks ago that it was exposing German warships sunk in World War II. In fact, there's two dozen of these ships that are still packed with explosives that are now visible near the port of Prahovo. They are among the hundreds scuttled by the Nazis as they fled a Soviet advance in 1944. The wrecks have always been a menace to river traffic whenever the water levels drop, but they've never before been exposed. So, yes, yeah, something, something must be done about this. We mentioned in last week's program some of the issues about tapping geothermal energy, and what do you know? I got a New Scientist article about that very subject that has some good news in it. Noted the piece, for years, those looking to generate electricity without using fossil fuels have dreamed of tapping the virtually unlimited heat source that lies eight kilometers or more between Earth's surface. Prior efforts have been stymied because getting to that heat entails drilling into rock that is too hard for conventional techniques. 
Now, one tantalizing possibility involves repurposing an existing technology to tap into this source and produce electricity at a lower cost than any existing form of power generation. Well, that sounds good. The technology that might enable this makes use of millimeter wave beams, which were optimized for fusion research at MIT. They could provide access to the 400 degree Celsius to 500 degree Celsius heat that lies several kilometers below Earth's surface. Extracting through a borehole, this heat could produce steam for electricity as a zero carbon substitute for fossil fuels. The opportunity here is huge, but the problem has been that once you drill down past sedimentary rock, which constitutes the first few kilometers of our crust, drillers hit granite or basalt. It's five to 10 times harder and resistant to standard techniques. Enter your millimeter wave beams. These are similar to, but vastly more powerful than the waves used in our microwave ovens. Created by a device called a gyrotron, these waves have now been proven to vaporize rock. Time is money, so if they can drill with this, uh, this method, they can greatly reduce the costs, and, well, who knows? Yeah, I can't resist paraphrasing General Buck Turgenson from Dr. Strangelove. He said, well, we sure could use one of them doomsday devices. <laughs> Only in this case, man, we sure could use one of them gyrotrons. And there are hints coming out of the nuclear fusion research going on that uh, they were able to, at one point, get more energy out than they put in. Although what I've heard is, yeah, they did it once and they haven't been able to do it again. We did a show on this years ago talking about uh, the possibility of nuclear fusion and how some people doubt that it's ever going to be possible. The longstanding joke in the industry is that uh, workable fusion is said to be 25 years away and always will be. There's some proponents that are now saying they think they're just five to ten years away from getting something that will work. We hope so. In a rather curious metaphor to our, our recent discussion, it was noted in the week's briefing section that the furthest ahead in fusion research is the National Fusion Research Center in South Korea. It has so far only managed to maintain plasma at 100 million degrees for 20 seconds, which isn't quite enough. Still, notes the article, the consensus among researchers is that fusion is within reach. The founder of Commonwealth Fusion Systems, Martin Green, said, I think it's not going too far to say that fusion is having its Kitty Hawk moment. We don't have a 747 jet, but we're flying. Now, Mr. Merlin is voicing an objection to the fact that 100 million degrees for 20 seconds ought to be plenty to heat a hot dog, and, and I, I would agree, but that's just not enough. Not even if all we were trying to do was cook everybody on the planet's hot dogs. Anyway, it's nice to have some encouraging news now and again. But I think at this point what we should do is jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. We have quite a backlog of these items, so, so let's splurge. We would note it was a good week recently for furry friends after right-wing nut Representative Lauren Boebert warned Americans that if Democrats ban assault-type weapons, Americans will need to eat dogs. She explained in Venezuela they eat dogs, and it started because they don't have firearms. To which I have to add, I've been to Venezuela... They don't eat dogs. And I'm quite certain they also have firearms. 
We also know that it was a bad week on one week in the middle of August for staying connected after an Apple iPhone fell from the pocket of Pittsburgh Pirate rookie Rudolfo Castro as he slid into third. Said Castro, it's horrible it happened to me. He claimed he forgot to take the phone out of his pocket before the game. And no, we don't know whether he was called out. And speaking of Republican nut candidates, as we were just a moment ago, it was an ugly week in early August for grammar after Laverne Spicer, a Republican congressional candidate in Florida, claimed that, quote, there are no pronouns in the Constitution, end quote. Critics, of course, have pointed out that there are dozens of pronouns in the U.S. Constitution, including its first word, we. All right, that was fun. Let's do it again. According to the week, it was a good week recently for Fido, at least Japanese Fido, with the news that Japan's sweltering summer heat has yielded a new pet fashion accessory, a wearable fan for dogs. Rei Uzawa, who runs a maternity wear firm, hatched the idea after seeing how sluggish her chihuahua became on walks amid Tokyo's longest recorded heat wave. The cool dog combines a battery-operated fan with a breathable mesh outfit, circulating air all around the dog's body. Miniature poodle owner Mami Kuomoto said it beats the ice packs she previously tried. It's easier to walk my dogs with this fan, she said. Well, sure, everybody knows how, how tough that is to walk your dog with ice packs attached. It was also a bad week in August for press freedom with the news that Alabama prison officials told the reporter she couldn't witness an execution because her skirt was too short. Ivana Hrinku said she had to borrow fishermen's waders to cover her legs and sneakers to replace her open-toed shoes to do her job. Her editor filed a complaint saying the officials' demands were sexist and an egregious breach of professional conduct. Personally, I think it should be against the law to witness executions wearing fishermen's waders. But that's just me. Now, for his part, Mr. Millen says he intends to investigate how it was fishermen's waders were available inside a prison. We're pretty sure there's a story there somewhere. And it was an ugly week. One week in August for those people that like to wear MAGA hats. With the news that lions, not sheep which is a Utah-based company that sells apparel emblazoned with pro-Trump, pro-gun slogans, has had to pay a $200,000 fine for replacing the made-in-China tags on its clothing with made-in-the-USA tags. Under a, uh, a settlement between Lions Not Sheep and the Federal Trade Commission, the company must notify all customers of its deception, including purchases of its Let's Go Brandon cap and the Give Violence a Chance t-shirts. We also have been unable to confirm the rumor that uh, the MAGA hat now stands for Making Attorneys Get Attorneys, considering all the number of Trump attorneys being subpoenaed. All right, let's do a few science items. One thing we kept talking about um, uh, a few months back was the fact that the star Beetlejuice was dimmer than usual. I know Mr. Miller found this about as interesting as watching paint dry. But what can I say? When I was a kid, I decided that Beetlejuice was my favorite star, if for no other reason than it had a name 
Beetlejuice. It is an unfortunate fact, however, that apparently it's a mispronunciation of the Arabic and it should be Betelgeist. But I'd say don't, don't try to win any bar bets on that one. In some follow-up on this, it was just, <laughs> it's been revealed that when Beetlejuice had this explosion on its surface in late 2019, in doing so, it lost a natural 400-day heartbeat rising and lowering of its, uh, of its luminosity that's been going on for at least a couple centuries. Something weird is going on on the star. And it's noted that none of the behavior witnessed on Betelgeuse has been ever seen before in any other star. There's some recent evidence that I can't put my hands on the article about that claims that looking at ancient texts, they believe that Betelgeuse used to be a yellow star and is now turned red as part of its natural evolution. It's going to blow up one day, one day soon. Of course, in astronomical terms, soon means somewhere between tomorrow and 100,000 years from now. And of course, the truth is, since it's hundreds of light years away, it might already have gone kapow. We just haven't gotten the news yet. Anyway, maybe that Vera Rubin Observatory in Chile will be able to keep, uh, keep, uh, keep us abreast of what the hell's going on in Betelgeuse. We'll see. In what we think is probably going to be a futile attempt, astronomers who claim to have spotted an interstellar meteor hitting the Earth are trying to raise $1.6 million to mount an expedition to search for fragments that may be on the seafloor north of Papua New Guinea. New scientist notes there have been only two confirmed observations of interstellar objects, Woumuamua, a cigar-shaped asteroid spotted in 2017, and Borisov, a comet seen in 2019. A few months before Borisov showed up, Avi Loeb and Amir Siraj at Harvard claimed to have identified an interstellar rock by crunching publicly available data collected from classified U.S. government sensors. The government's a little bit sensitive about telling what they know about how fast things enter the Earth's atmosphere, but they did confirm that the numbers looked correct, meaning that this thing came in so hot that it could not have been part of what orbits our sun. It had to come from elsewhere. Sounds great. It'd be fantastic to have a piece of it and examine, you know, something that came from another star system. But this object, which may have entered the Earth on an interstellar trajectory, is only like about 18 inches across. Good luck finding that on the seafloor. And that's assuming it stayed in one piece. I don't know. They don't have a snowball's chance in hell, but it'd be cool if they found it. And in other news related to things smacking into the Earth from outer space, and how's that for a segue? It's reported that what appears to be a 9-kilometer-wide crater has been discovered buried beneath the seafloor near the coast of West Africa. It is thought to have been made about the same time as the larger Chicxulub impact that wiped out the dinosaurs, leading to speculation that it was caused by a chunk that broke off of the Chicxulub asteroid. Well, this is possible, of course. Back in 1994, when comet Shoemaker-Levy got too close to Jupiter, it broke up into 21 fragments that hit the planet over a six-day period. And although this crater certainly was not a game-changer for planet Earth, compared to its uh, presumed bigger sister or brother that hit in Chicxulub, scientists note that this impact uh, could have been, well, it could have caused quite a stink locally, estimating that it could have produced tsunamis 1,500 feet high near the impact site, which which is described as having been a very significant regional event. And continuing on our falling from space uh, motif, we have the fact that a farmer in remote southeastern Australia was herding sheep recently 
was out in his four-wheeler when he came across a nine-foot-tall piece of space junk. Said Mark Miners, I was quite surprised. It's not something you see every day on a sheep farm. The object is a section of a cargo trunk that was ejected from the SpaceX Crew-1 spacecraft as it returned from the International Space Station last year. Such debris usually burns up in Earth's atmosphere, but the increased frequency of private space flights by companies like Elon Musk's SpaceX makes it more likely that one of these chunks that gets through could land in a populated area. Last year, several pieces of burning SpaceX rocket debris landed on a farm in Washington State, although I'm surprised to hear it described as burning pieces, because usually by the time things uh, pass to the lowest part of the Earth's atmosphere, they're, they're, they're pretty much cooled down, but I guess it depends on how large they are. I really don't know. I'm, I'm just a country doctor, Jim. And if you've been worried about Hyperion, the world's largest tree, which rises 380 feet in the Redwood National and State Parks, well, this made the news recently because knuckleheads using GPS technology found where the tree was and went out to go pay it a visit. And of course, in doing so, trampled the, uh, the, the various vegetation near the tree and the ground underneath it, etc. So anyway, anyway, the Park Service has now put a price on, on you know, visiting the tree to any knuckleheads that try. Anyone caught in the area of the towering coast redwood is now subject to a $5,000 fine or six months behind bars. Buried in the article was the, the note that hikers trekking to the tree have risked getting lost in the thick forest because cell phone service and GPS signals are weak in the area. God, imagine hiking in the woods without cell phone service. The mind reels. And in the minute we have left, I would note that Marin County has now banned the sale of tropical milkweed. Some people say that the tropical milkweed, which does not die off like the native variety, can confuse the monarch butterflies into laying eggs when they shouldn't. But on a recent tour of a nature preserve in the Fremont area, it was explained to me by the docent that uh, they have some tropical milkweed and native milkweed both present in the park. And that from what they could see, the monarchs were doing better with the tropical stuff. I don't know. The article notes that residents who have tropical milkweed are not going to be required to rip out their plants under the ban, but they're being encouraged to cut the plant down to about six inches during the fall and winter months to not confuse the monarchs. Speaking of confused monarchs, we do have to note with some sadness that Charles III, now the King of England, whom we like to refer to as Chucky, has in the past supported homeopathy, noting that he even treats his animals with homeopathic remedies. Homeopathy is, of course, one of the great frauds in the history of modern science. So if that isn't a confused monarch, I don't know what is. Anyway, let's take a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.